All right, welcome to Viewpoint. What's up, what's up? Hey, uh, I know some people are still coming in and, and being seated. It is the watermark way to be, you know, 10 or 15 minutes late. Although some of you guys went to the probably 5 p.m. service, so you're already here. Um, that's, how to, that's how to get people uh, on time, you know, have an event prior to that. But hey, uh, I'm I actually scanning the room. Um, I know quite a, f- a few of you, which is great. Um, this is going to feel a little uh, informal, which is awesome. That's what we want. Um, but for those of you who don't know me, my name's Nathan. I serve on the equipping team here at Watermark, and uh, <clears throat> I'm going to be one of the uh, primary teachers for this uh, course, which is going to last until August, right? Um, and then for those of y'all, especially the women in the, in the room, y'all are uh, probably, she doesn't need any introduction, but this is Nika Spaulding. Um, she's going to uh, also be one of the primary teachers. And then uh, Blake Holmes, who I don't know that he's even here yet. Yeah, he's running. So, away. hey, when he comes in, when he comes in, seriously, everybody boo him. That would be awesome. <laughs> Just be like, boo, you're late. I'll, I'll give you some kind of signal or somebody will when he comes in. That'd be awesome. And then uh, he's going to help teach. And then uh, for a couple times, uh, there's going to be a guy named Bobby Crotty who's going to be in here as well. So we're y'all's teaching team for Viewpoint. We're really excited about uh, what this class is, what it represents for um, the body here. To As we examined and, and looked at uh, kind of, if you've seen our equipping brochure, we have we kind of categorize into exploring, which is like great questions. People are not um, yet a believer. And then... There's beginning, and then uh, growing, and then maturing. And we had a lot of stuff for those first three categories, and we didn't have a whole ton of stuff for the whole maturing crowd. And so, uh, other than like, you could apply for the residency and you know spend an entire year of your life, you know, making uh, making 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 buckets, massive amounts of money. <clears throat> but uh, and by massive, I mean like two dollars. <laughs> <laughs> a day, not an hour. A day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you total it up and start crying is pretty much what happens. But uh, this is one of our uh, uh, pushes, though, for that maturing crowd, which is why there's an application, uh, which, as you know, I mean, you, you all did the application, or you were supposed to anyway, unless you just, like, came in here, which, whatever. All right, sweet. But <laughs> if you... Uh, Go ahead and raise um, your hand. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, right. <laughs> Get out! <laughs> But we, we really want this uh, to be a class where that really helps you to, to grow, um, not only in your knowledge of God, but also, as, uh, as the initial slide said, where life and theology meets. We want to really um, kind of at the intersection of our belief in God and our experience with him on a daily basis through the ups and downs, in and outs of, of everyday life. And so that, that's the goal of the class. So... <clears throat> Um, if you haven't already gotten a book, this is Bible Doctrine by Wayne Grudem. Some of you maybe seminarians or other people who are you know, lay theologians who like to read stuff. You may have Grudem's like, systematic theology book, which is a little uh, more robust than this. This is basically a condensed version of that book. Okay? Um, we would encourage you, even if you have Grudem's systematic theology, we would encourage you to buy the Bible Doctrine book because, as you can tell, on the course overview, which is the next slide um, over. Mike is going to be my slide mover tonight. <laughs> yeah. Um, as you can tell, so tonight we're going to cover uh, kind of an introductory introduction to theology, 
But then the rest of the time, and you'll see we skip March because March the 27th, I believe, is Easter. So we're not going to meet on Easter. We'll meet the next um, Sunday night, which is April the 3rd. So we'll meet twice in April. I just did three for twice. So twice in April. And then you can see how we'll, we're going to move through Grudem's book the entire time. So all of those numbers represent page, pages in not his systematic theology, but in his Bible doctrine, which is why we encourage you to buy the book. I think we have... Yeah, everybody got it as part okay. of the registration. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Perfect. Bam. So if you don't have one awesome. in your hands, feel free to go grab one. Yep. So that's, uh, um, that's, that's Grudem's book. And then for tonight, to kind of uh, preview what we're doing tonight, we're going to move through uh, what, what is theology, um, who's a theologian, uh, when do we do theology, why, how, and then we'll, uh, we'll take a break. So Nike is going to cover that first portion. We'll take a break around 7.50, 7.55, and we'll break for about 10 minutes, let everybody stretch their legs, um, get something to eat or drink, use the restroom. And we'll come back in, and for the second half of, of the course, I'm going to walk us through what is epistemology, why does that matter, and also what are the essentials of the Christian faith. So that's what tonight's going to look like. Um, and then to start us off, obviously, um, I was reading the other day, I've been thinking a lot about, uh, uh, well, I've been thinking a lot about discipleship, which is a um, pretty integral part of the Christian life. I would argue it is the Christian life as as when you enter into a relationship with Jesus, you become a follower of Jesus. And it's really easy when uh, you, you begin to delve into uh, kind of theology proper, which is what we're going to be covering in this course, and thinking about God, um, uh, who is, uh, what's the nature of sin, what's the nature of man, what's the nature of redemption, what's the nature of the church, all of these things. When you start to delve into that stuff and really begin to study theology proper, it's really easy. There's this weird thing that happens on a consistent basis where people who are studying that uh, will uh, begin to think like, oh, well, I'm moving through Gruden's book, you know. Hey, I know more theology than that person over there. Or look at what I know and what that person doesn't know over there. It's just weird. I mean, it's part of human nature. It's part of just pride, basically. And, and so, obviously, we definitely don't want to, um, as we like to say on the equipping team, we definitely don't want to make, like, smarter sinners, right? Um, <clears throat> this is supposed to be, like, a transformative exercise. And I would tell you that um, theology, as Nike is going to talk a lot about tonight, um, theology, um, when done properly, and frankly, when you're actually doing theology, is a way to encounter God himself. And when you encounter God himself, then you realize there are no experts. We are all beginners, right? And so I want to read a passage that's just been, um, it's been, I've been meditating on it a lot lately. It's been kind of on my heart. So turn your Bibles really quickly to uh, Matthew chapter 23. For those of y'all who know the book of Matthew, you'll immediately be like, whoa, dang, that's that chapter where Jesus like lights into the Pharisees, you know? And I would be like, well, yeah, it is. (laughs) Um, but he starts that in verse 13, and we're only going to read to verse 12, so relax. Yeah, yeah, Matthew 23. Give you all a second to turn there, and then I'll read. All right, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, which is like this revered you know, place of authority. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. For they do not practice what they preach. 
They tie up heavy loads and um, put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at a banquet and the most important seat in the synagogue. They love to be greeted in the marketplace and to have men call them rabbi. Um, And this is where I really wanted to uh, focus. But you, right? But it's funny because Jesus is talking about the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the, the authorities, the people who have done a lot of uh, theology proper, right? They're, they're experts at it. And, and, and I can almost just see like Jesus even maybe even pointing to some of them who, who um, are, are, are even potentially there or are around them. And, then, and I could see him like turn to his disciples and, and he, he like zeroes in on me. He's like, but you, right? but my followers, my, my disciples are not to be called rabbi or teacher. For you only have one master, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Sometimes this is confusing to me because, um, uh, especially in some uh, Christian subculture, which a lot of Christian subculture like drives me crazy, right? Um, there's a whole lot of reasons why that's the case. Some of it's my fault, some of it's their fault, but whatever. Um, but there's this Christian subculture, and in the Christian subculture, sometimes, hey, guys, there's Blake Holmes right there. <laughs> I was like, hey, Blake Holmes is going to help teach, but he's late. <laughs> just, just for the record, I had nothing to do with that. Yeah, right. That's, that's awesome. No, this is the guy I was talking about. He's going to help teach as well. But <clears throat> all right, back to the Bible. <clears throat> So in this Christian subculture thing there, though, there's, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> I'm going to have to brush up on my resume. Um, but hey, uh, sometimes when you pour into someone, like we can refer to one another as like spiritual father. Have you ever heard this before? Like someone's like, oh, well, my spiritual parents are these people. My spiritual father is this person, my spiritual mother. And I'm, I look at, I look at Matthew 23 and I'm just like scratching my head. I'm like, really? Um, don't call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he's in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher. He is the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Man, I think as we, you know, as we begin to move through this stuff, hopefully the, the, the goal of this entire exercise is, is for the transformation of your heart. And frankly, um, it's not even for the transformation of your heart. The, the whole goal of this exercise is for, is for you to encounter the Father um, through the sacrifice of the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why we're here, right? And He is, and He alone is the teacher, right? So, as we go through this exercise, the exercise is to encounter uh, the, a living Christ, right, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, that is the end of, of all theology. And frankly, if, if that's not what you're doing when you're doing theology, then you're doing something, but it's not theology, right? Um, and, and, and so I, I, all that to say, um, man... Uh, we, we very much want to come in here every single night. We're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to laugh. We're going to um, move through some difficult topics and try to make sense of it. But um, the whole goal um, for us and our posture when we come in here is to be uh, one of humility, um, uh, all of us. Um, because, like I said, the ground is even. It's level at the foot of the cross. 
So let's go there. Heavenly Father, we praise you because of who you are. You're worthy of our praise. And from you, all life is, is sourced. All life is sustained. Um, even the thoughts that are coursing through our brains right now um, are derived and only make sense in you. And so um, we humble ourselves before you. We pray that this exercise over the next eight months for everybody who's in this room, um, teachers, uh, lay theologians, beginners, people who are just now, don't even know a lot of these terms that we're going to even be talking about. We pray that through this exercise, I pray that we would encounter you, Lord. Um, come be with us. Your word um, uh, promises us that we're, we're two or more gathered in your name, that you're there um, with us. And so we're grateful. We humble ourselves before you. Um, help us to see um, the beauty of your son and, and encounter him and be empowered to live the kind of life that you would have us to live through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, we love you. We give you this time. We pray these things in, in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Nate. Um, one of the things that I've done in getting ready to teach this class is talk to several of you because you're all my friends. And, uh, and several of you have said, this is a class that intimidates me, if I'm being completely honest with you. And so part of today is not only an introduction to this, this topic of theology. If you look, we're going to talk about what it is, who does it, when do we do it, why do we do it, how do we do it. But hopefully it'll take some of the mystery away. My hope when you walk away from here today is for you to go, I know what theology is, and I now know I'm a theologian, if you weren't convinced of it before you came in here. And so that's part of what we're going to do today. And so just some of the ground rules. If you have a question, ask it. I mean, this is, this is going to be your family for the next eight months, and so it's, it's really bright right here. So if I can't see your hand, just yell it out, uh, and we will engage as we go along because we want to make sure as we're using terms and defining things and moving along that everybody's coming with us because we hope that this hopefully will be an opportunity for you to go, man, theology is, is practical, theology is manageable, and it's something that I enjoy engaging in the practice of doing. And so let's just start out with what is theology? Webster, who is a theologian in his own right, defined theology as the science of God or of religion, the science which treats of the existence, character, and attributes of God, his laws and government, the doctrines we are to believe, and the duties we are to practice, Divinity, as more commonly understood, the knowledge derivable from the scriptures, the systematic exhibition of revealed truth, the science of Christian faith and life. So real simple, right? I mean, you could sum that up in four words, right? No, right? It's complicated. And unfortunately, many people approach theology with this definition in mind that seems like um, I need now a new dictionary to define half the words that were in this entry, right? We're like, Webster, chill out, okay? And so part of this definition is to show us that this is a lot of times what happens to theologists. People look at it and go, this is, this is something for the really smart folks, the nerds, the ones who graduated top of their Bible class, when in fact theology is much more simpler than this definition lets on. Theology is simply, as Augustine says, rational discussion which respects the deity, so rational discussion, using your brain, using your mind with respect to the deity, to God, the God that we know, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Millard Erickson makes it even simpler for us, and he says, the study or science of God. You can wrap your mind around that one, right? Study and science of God. Or Charles Ryrie helps us out and says, thinking about God and expressing those thoughts in some way. So what is theology? Thinking about God and talking about it. Everybody good with that one? 
Do you want to memorize Webster's or this one? Yeah, so I thought, yeah, it's, it's simple. Theology is not some really difficult concept that's only for the theologians and only for those that, that understand really big words. Instead, it is simply thinking about God and expressing those thoughts in some way. Fairly simple for us. And so then we move on, and Stanley Grins and Roger Olson wrote a book called uh, Who is a Theologian or Who Needs Theology? And it says, theology is not as many wrongly suppose, a kind of esoteric knowledge possessed by a few superior intellectuals. It is simply faith-seeking understanding. This phrase, faith-seeking understanding, is one that goes way far back in the history of Christianity. In fact, Anselm of Canterbury, who was a theologian around 1100s, right, Nate? He was one of the guys that, that used this term. And what it means is simply that I believe, so help me understand. I believe in you, God, so help me understand more about you, more about your word, more about what you've decreed, more about the world you've created, and all of this stuff. It's not for those who have some mysterious knowledge of the deity. In fact, it's for everyone, which is why we love that you guys are taking this class. This is what we're supposed to be doing. If we say that we're serious about the Lord and we're serious about our faith, then we need to be serious about theology, which is just to say we're serious about knowing and talking about God. We're serious about our faith being accompanied by understanding of that faith. And so we'll look at what it looks like to have faith without understanding, and nobody wants to recommend that. And so if that is the definition of theology, then it naturally lends itself, who is a theologian? Well, I hope, I hope you've already answered that in your head that, well, then everyone is, right? Who's a theologian? Well, it's anyone who's asked the question, who am I? Right? Because if you're asking the question, who am I? You can't answer that question apart from knowing who God is. Not if you have the right answer. If we're made in the image of God, which our scriptures tell us that we are, then who we are is deeply rooted in who God is. We go on and we ask the question, why am I here? Your purpose in this life cannot be revealed without first knowing who God is. Because your chief end and your chief purpose in this life is to glorify God. So to this question, who is a theologian? A theologian is anyone who asks ultimate questions. right? And this may be like really simple and oversimplified, but that's part of our point in this everyone's a theologian. Everyone. How we answer these questions and the ability to answer them will determine how good of a theologian we are, but you are, in fact, a theologian if you have thoughts about God and thoughts about, you know, if you want to talk about him. So this source is really great. The question is not, who is a theologian? The question is, what kind of theologian am I going to be? Are you going to be a good theologian or a bad theologian? This is a more accurate question because, as one writer put it, not all theologies are equal. Who is a theologian? Everyone. So the question isn't, are you one? The question is, are you a good one? So how many of y'all read the article? I'm kidding. You don't have to raise your hand. But good job. That was actually really encouraging. So thinking back to that article, there's a reason why we sent it to you. What in that article is speaking to what I'm talking about right now? Thinking back to making and begetting. Anybody? Don't be shy. There's only 100 of your best friends in here. No? Oh, there's just chatter. No? Yeah, so thinking about the article from C.S. Lewis, Making and Begetting, what does he say about theology that pertains to what I'm saying right now, that everybody's a theologian? I'll read it to you. Turn to page 155. If you look at page 155 in the paragraph in the middle of the page, this is part of why we sent this article to you. It says, in other words, theology is practical, especially now. In the old days, when there was less education and discussion, perhaps it was possible to get on with a very few simple ideas about God. 
but it is not so now. Everyone reads, everyone hears things discussed, everyone tweets. Consequently, if you do not listen to theology, that will not mean that you have no ideas about God. It will mean that you have a lot of wrong ones, bad, muddled, out-of-date ideas. For a great many of the ideas about God which are trotted out as novelties today are simply the ones which real theologians tried centuries ago and rejected. To believe in the popular religion of modern England is retrogression. It's like believing the earth is flat. C.S. Lewis wrote that, what, 50, 60, 70 years ago? And he's arguing all that time ago that we no longer have an excuse about theology, that we can no longer avoid it. We no longer live in agrarian societies where we're out in the field all day long, and we may not talk to our neighbor until it's reaping season. And even more so for us today. There's theology on the news. There's theology on Twitter. I added that in there, guys. That wasn't in the original. Everybody needs to lighten up around here. People are like, that was not in my copy. There's an error in yours. Yeah, if C.S. Lewis can make that observation, how much more is that true for us today? That the issue isn't whether or not you're going to engage in theological discussion. The issue is whether or not you're going to do it well. Whether or not you're going to have the tools to engage with people who are already doing what we're talking about. They're discussing God. And quite frankly, most of the stuff out there is really bad theology. And a lot of times it's packaged as if it's new and special and interesting and sexy. And really it's just old stuff that we've tried and found wanting. And so everybody's a theologian, and not only is everybody a theologian, but it's more urgent today than ever before with the technology that we have that we be good theologians, able to interact with ideas, able to discuss them, able to put new, not new, but old, trusted, good theology into the sphere of conversation. So who needs theology? In that book, that, that Grenz and Olson book, they talk about five different types of theologians. And so if, if everybody's a theologian, the question is if you're going to be a good or a bad one. And, and we're going to talk about these five. And you're going to see that there's a little bit of a spectrum here. And there's some area that we would say is acceptable. And there's some area that we would say, please don't be that. Okay? And so the first one is a tabloid theologian. A tabloid theologian, you're going to, this is going to sound familiar. You're going to have somebody that pops in your head. It's someone that doesn't think about what they believe. They're enthusiastic about what they believe, but it's largely made up from sayings on T-shirts, coffee mugs, and pop culture. They're likely to believe what they read on Twitter or BuzzFeed. So name the first person. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. (laughs) Yeah, sadly, this is a lot of uh, what you interact with, with people who call themselves Christians, right? They're the ones who forwarded on that Obama was the Antichrist. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Back when he, in the first election, and you were like, I don't don't think so. And, uh, or they were like, hey, if you don't forward this on, then God won't answer your prayers, and you're like, mm, it's not how that works. Yeah. And, and sadly, people believe that stuff. Right? Again, it's not that you aren't a theologian. It's that you are. But how good of one are you going to be? And sadly, a lot of people settle for a tabloid theologian. Whatever pops up, whatever they hear, they, they just read information and they leave it found test, untested. And so they just they absorb it. And they go, that must be what theology is. That must be what's true of God. That must mean whatever. I, I recently read an article that popped up on my Twitter feed and it says, how could a good and loving God allow for the tornadoes in Dallas? It was the Dallas Morning News. I was like, wow, can't believe they're writing on this. So I click on it. And you know what it was? It was a link. I just hit my 10,000 steps without moving. I know, I know, be impressed. Um, Talk with your hands, you can fool your Fitbit. Yeah, so I start reading it, and really what made me really sad is it was an article about how God actually isn't good and loving, that God is no greater than the created order, and that he just has to sit back and allow these things to happen. And And if you're not careful, if you leave things untested, you might begin to believe that that's who God is. 
And that's just really unfortunate. So do not leave here today a tabloid theologian. You have all been warned. You have all been been told this is not an acceptable way to do theology. Maybe a little bit better, and I say a little bit better, is the folk theologian. The folk theologian, like the tabloid, doesn't think about what they believe. They are enthusiastic about it, but it's largely made up of Christian cliches. The folk theologian isn't reflective, and their beliefs have often been uncritically inherited from friends, family, and tradition. The only reason the folk theologian is a little bit better is because sometimes they get it right. Now, they don't know how they got to that conclusion, but since they inherited it, sometimes they inherit a really great conclusion. These are the folks, though, that, that as my friend Blake Holmes is, is known for saying, is you don't want to figure out your theology when you're on the eighth floor of children's medical. Right? These are people who, who their theology has been left untested, and so that when the rubber meets the road, when things get really hard, suddenly those cliches and those hand-me-down theologians are beginning to wonder, do I really believe this? This is a scary place to be, because even if you're right, the world will tell you you're wrong. And when it matters most, you've got to know that your theology is not untested, that it has been tested, that it's grounded in more than my mom believed it, therefore I believe it, and it's something that you can anchor yourself into because theology is inherently practical, and we're going to get to why we need theology. The next one is, I hope where many of you will find yourselves, the lay theologian. The lay theologian thinks about what they believe. They're enthusiastic about what they believe, and despite not having all the skills of one who is a seminary trained, they seek to have a whole and coherent understanding of their faith. The lay theologian critically evaluates their beliefs and doesn't simply hold to them because they're beliefs of friends, family, or tradition. This is what we're saying is the bare minimum. Right? This is what we're saying is you're going, to, hey, I believe that God is good, not because my mama told me so, but because I've anchored that belief into my soul because I've read his word, I've considered his ways, I've looked out into the world, I've started with faith, and now my understanding is there. This is where you need to be. This is, these are the people that when their world turns upside down, their beliefs are. Their beliefs don't. And so this is where we would say we want at least everybody in here as a lay theologian. Again, it's not whether you are a theologian, it's whether you're a good one. Then there's ministerial or professional theologian. Uh, this is, I combine them. So ministerial, think of people in ministry. Professional, think of those who are, who are teaching at a seminary level. But the ministerial theologian thinks about what they believe. They're enthusiastic about it, and, and they're likely involved in pastoral and or preaching ministry. They're practically aware of the value of knowing what they believe so to, as to pass it on to others. Unlike the lay theologian, they have a working knowledge of the biblical languages, the history of theological development, and can find their way around commentaries, lexicons, journals, etc., more than simply critically evaluating their own beliefs, the ministerial theologian also has a strong grasp of other competing theological beliefs. For some of you in here, we hope that you'll get a taste of what we're doing, and then it'll inspire you to continue on, to learn more, to grow more, to not only go, I can define Calvinism, but I can also define Arminianism, and we'll get to that later. I can not only defend my pre-tribulation view of the rapture, I can be sensitive to the post-tribulationists as well. And so... Um, <laughs> Amen. Yeah, <laughs> he's wrong, but it's okay. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Hey, I got the mic. Yeah, yeah. I'll be leaving the room. Yeah, these are these are the people though that you go. Hey, when it when it's time for me to ask some really heavy questions, or I really need to dive into something, these are the people you think. These are the ones you go. Hey, help me help me wrestle through this because they're not going to give you just one side of it. They're going to really help you. Then on the other extreme is the academic theologian. The academic theologian thinks about what they believe and beliefs in general. 
However, their study can often remain in the realm of thinking. That is extreme reflection and speculation. The academic theologian's work is often directed predominantly to other academic theologians. These are the people that when people normally say theologian, this is who they're thinking of. The guy who's hanging out in his ivory tower, unable to speak to the common man because he's so busy speaking in theological terms that you're like, super lapsarian. I'm sorry, what did you just say? Uh, This guy, I'll be really honest with you, I didn't encounter a lot of these guys when I was in seminary. Um, I encountered much more of the ministerial and professional academician. And and what I'm saying is many of our seminary professors are guys and gals who also were involved in the local church, were also pastoring, were also preaching. I would say that this is an extreme view of theology and that while it is important that we have people that study to that extent, they should not be the the norm. The norm should be found somewhere in the lay and ministerial uh, theologians. And so when you think about this, think about it as different approaches to medicine, right? Uh, so you have like cold sweats and you, you're cold and you got a fever and all that and you get on WebMD and WebMD is the tabloid theologian. You end up with cancer no matter what you type in, right? You're like, I was playing basketball, I heard a loud pop, I'm limping and they're like, oh, thyroid cancer, yeah. Okay, that is just not, not good. You also don't go to the neurosurgeon when you have a headache, right? I mean, unless you have like... Uh, somebody referring you to the, to the academic theologian. So when you think of this in terms of what kind of theology do you need, well, sometimes you need to stay in that lay area. And then other times, there will be times where it demands that some people need to be ministerial. We need people to be scholarly. We need people to engage in all of that. But I'm just saying at a minimum, guys, be people who think critically about what you believe. And the fact that you're in here tonight tells me you already do, which is hugely encouraging. And so this class was a little bit of a twinkle in my eye not too long ago, so it's really fun that it's here now. So if you haven't grasped it yet, I'll just sum it up for you in Ryrie's words. Theology is for everyone. Indeed, everyone needs to be a theologian. In reality, everyone is a theologian of one sort or another, and therein lies the problem. There is nothing wrong with being an amateur theologian or a professional theologian, but there is everything wrong with being an ignorant or a sloppy one. And so may it never be said of us, may it never be said of anybody in this room, If this is a pursuit that means we think about God and we talk about God, it deserves nothing less than our best. And so that's what we're going to do over the next eight months. So the question is, when do we do theology? Well, you'll be a little surprised when I tell you all the time. Uh, We do it when we think about God. We do it when we share the gospel. We do it when we interpret the Bible, when we get sick, when we plan for the future, when we choose school for our children, when we vote, when we attempt to deal with our sin lives, when we decide on who to marry, when we decide what to buy. Why? Because theology is inherently practical. Nate talked about this earlier. The reason why we do theology... Now look, in and of itself, it is a great conclusion to think well about God. There is is intrinsic value to that, to think well about God. But part of what naturally happens when you think well about God is it affects the way that you live. So part of why we do theology is so that we can interact in the world that we have been given by God, the people that we've been given by God. So how do I know? So let's just pick one. We'll do uh, when we vote. So why, whoa, why does theology matter when we vote? Well, I mean, you have candidates, some of which will tell you that the body inside of a woman is just tissue. And the woman has every right to terminate that life. And there will some that will tell you, no, that is a life in that woman and she does not have the right to terminate that life. What does it matter? Well, it matters because if you think well about God and you think well about his scriptures and you realize in Psalm 139, he tells you, I've knit people in their wombs, that they're fearfully and wonderfully made. From Genesis 1, we know we're made in the image of God and we know that we don't have the right to terminate life from the Ten Commandments, right? Theology matters. 
It's, it's so much more than which candidate do you like and which one's going to survive like the four years. Have y'all seen those memes that are going around about how they age four years? And like poor Bernie Sanders, like the guy is already ancient. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know if he's going to make it. Whoever he picks for the vice president, we should really evaluate. Yeah, it's so much more than that. It's so much more than who can debate well. It's so much more than... I don't know, whatever, whatever you're evaluating, how do you go into that, to that little box that we're all going to do very soon, close the curtain behind you, and make a decision for the future of your country, if not for doing it theologically, for doing it based on what you know about God and his truth and what he reveals about it? Or what about uh, when we decide on who to marry, right? It should be easy, whoever's the best looking, right? Yeah, or if we think about how God's designed marriage in Genesis 1, he says between a man and a woman, God invented it, so it's God's rules that we have to apply to it. He tells you in Ephesians 5 that husbands, you're going to love us as Christ loved the church, which means, guess what? You get to die, and then women, you're going to love and you're going to submit in the same way that Christ submits to God, which means in every way we follow that pattern. And so who you marry, are you willing to submit to that person? Are you willing to die for that person? Are they at least the opposite gender of you? I mean, these are things that we need to take into consideration if it's God's rules and it's God's design and it was God's invention. It was God's covenant, right? Theology is inherently practical. It's in everything that we do, which leads to the next point of why we do it. We do it because it is how we develop a worldview. A worldview is the means by which we observe, interpret, and interact in the world that we live in. Theology is what creates these presuppositions that we take to every, every incident, every, every decision, every, every situation we come up against. This is where theology comes into play. So how, does, how do we define a worldview? Well, James Sire says it like this. A worldview is a set of presuppositions, which are assumptions which may be true, partially true, or entirely false, which we hold to, consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently, postmoderns, what, what, about the basic makeup of our world. Yeah, the truth is, is how we interact with things, we have presuppositions that we bring into it. You know that, right? Because you meet the guy who hates all women, and they think they're inferior, right? And how do you get around him? You're like, And awkwardly so is the woman who hates all men. They have the presupposition that women are better than men. And you interact with them, you're like, wow, that was really unpleasant, and I have no idea what just happened. Because really it has very little to do with you. It has to do with the fact that they have a presupposition about how they interact with the gender in front of them. And we have these, whether consciously or subconsciously, and, and postmoderns, they're really inconsistent, right? It's part of why we just, they're, they're like, you kind of want to just grab them and sit on still. And you're like, are there absolute truths or not? Like, please stop shifting. Yeah, these are the things that we bring to all the decisions that we make in our life. And theology plays into this because your presuppositions are either going to be based on God and his truth and what you believe about him, or it's going to be based on something else. Can I make one more no, I'm just kidding. Hey, just on this point right here, I think, I think it's extremely important because you can't just, when, you, when you're talking about presuppositions, you can't just come to it and say, well, the Bible says this, and so I'm going to believe it. Presuppositions run um, way deeper than just um, what, what the words say on a page, right? Our presuppositions are built from our first conscious moment all the way up until now. They're, they're, they're influenced by how you were parented, where you were parented, all the brokenness in your life, the brokenness of other people who are, who are uh, um, uh, influencing your life by, by your own brokenness, by your own sin, by your own view of God, all of it. It's crazy complicated, right? And so when you think about presuppositions, don't just think about, oh, well, the Bible says this and I believe it. Because a lot of times, guys, the Bible says stuff and you believe it up here, but you don't believe it in here. 
right? And th- so it's a, it's a deep healing process. You'll encounter this all the time, which is one of the reasons in our postmodern society people flip-flop all the time because they know what they should believe, but they don't actually believe it. So just a point I wanted to make Yeah, that's that. great. It's really great. Chuck Colson defines it as it is simply the sum total of our beliefs about the world, the big picture that directs our daily decisions and actions. So if that's what a worldview is, is how we're going to do all this, it is critical that we base it on something more than our own beliefs, some standard that's not moving, some truth that's beyond our own inherent beliefs, because the truth is we're really flawed and we're apt to believe things. Yeah, we got a question in the back. Yeah, can I define postmodernism? Yes. Um, how much time do you have? Uh, yeah, yeah. So, post, so this is a great question. So postmodernism, um, when you think about modernism, so we'll back up. Modernism was really this time in scholasticism when universities were being built, when sciences were becoming uh, par- like just absolutely tantamount in society. And so people began to study and to learn and all that. And it really came about when, when technology was advanced, after the printing press, after all of this stuff, universities were able to be born because people were doing more than just agrarian society. So that was modernism, where science ruled the day. What I can see, what I can observe, what I can touch, what I can feel, whatever I can calculate and experiment on, that is truth. That's how we're going to know what we know. Well, slowly we've shifted away from that, away from modernism, and we've come into a time called postmodernism where people are beginning to question those absolute truths. They're beginning to question the realities that we can measure and weigh and all that. And in some ways, it's a really great thing. Because modernism wasn't like this big, like amazing thing for Christianity. In fact, it was detrimental in a lot of ways to Christianity because Christianity, you can't measure everything. You can't observe everything. In fact, part of what happened in Europe during the time of modernism is people kept going, there can't be supernatural means, therefore let's try and explain God without supernatural means. Well, postmodernism, although it doesn't really believe in an absolute truth, does leave room for miracles. It does leave room for God to work in space and time in ways that moderns kind of cringe up a little bit when you talk about that. And so postmodernism is a new sort of way that we view the world. Um, And uh, I'll just, shameless plug, I did a whole talk on it. Uh, So if you just search in the watermark.org, if you look at my name, there's a 45-minute talk that we did for our Wednesday morning leaders that uh, hopefully we'll be able to explain a little bit more than just in a few minutes here. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, Nancy Piercy describes the worldview as this. It's a mental map that tells us how to navigate the world effectively. So, I mean, it... It's critical that we have a good worldview. It's critical that our worldview is based on something beyond ourselves, beyond even the education that we received. I mean, I went to OU, so like, you know, no hope for me. So then the question is, how do we develop a biblical worldview? Well, first step is that we must first think Christianly. Nancy Piercy says, thinking Christianly means understanding that Christianity gives the truth about the whole of reality, a perspective for interpreting every subject matter. What do we mean by that? All truth is God's truth. Let's expand on that a little bit more. We must begin by being utterly convinced that there is a biblical perspective on everything, not just on spiritual matters. The Old Testament tells us repeatedly that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Similarly, the New Testament teaches that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We often interpret these passages to mean spiritual wisdom only, but the text places no such limitation on the term. Most people have a tendency to read these passages as though they say that the fear of the Lord is the foundation of a religious knowledge, writes Clouser. But the fact is that they make a very radical claim, the claim that somehow all knowledge depends upon religious truth. There's a reason why this is true. It's because truth in itself isn't some like abstract reality outside of God. God is in fact true. 
and he's the beginning of truth. It was, it was consummated in Christ's life in the same way that Christ does not love us. Christ is love. Christ does not simply tell the truth. Christ is the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Therefore, anything that is true emanates from God. And anything that's not true does not come from God. And this is, this is an absolute critical reality that we hold on to because what we tend to do in our, in our thinking and what our world tends to do is they say, well, here's religious truth, and this comes from God. And so we can evaluate this in terms of the Bible and all of that, but everything else, that's secular, and we can just do as we think we need to do in this way. But in fact, if we will wed the two of them, as I think Scripture tells us to do, there is nothing beyond the scope of God. Whatever is true, two plus two, that originated in God. I know that seems like really abstract and heady, but that is the truth. (laughs) Get it? Yeah. Yeah, so we need to believe that. We need to believe that we don't come at things and going, man, I don't know what God would say about this, but this is kind of outside the realm of God, so I'm just going to go at it however I want. No, no, no. Everything. If you need to know the truth, you start with, God, what would you say about this? Show me what is true in this situation. Show me what is right. And this is so helpful because you don't want your truth based on some shifting thing. Where every time you come into a situation going, I have no clue how to attack this. I have, I have no clue how to act Christianly in this moment. When in fact, God is telling you, just come to me and I will show you the way. Secondly, we must recognize that nothing falls outside the scope of the central turning points in biblical history. Creation, fall, and redemption. And, and we would add to that restoration. And so what do we mean by that? We can analyze every philosophy or ideology around these four fundamental ideas. How did it all begin? I mean, everybody asks this question. Scientists especially, how did we come from nothing to something? Science has their answer. We have ours. Genesis 1. In the beginning was God, right? And he created all of these things. God didn't have a beginning. God is eternal. And in that eternality, chose to create what we know as the universe, as the world that we live in and all of that. And this is a question, where do we come from The fall can answer the question, what went wrong? Everybody asks the question, where did evil and suffering come from? Everybody asks it. And depending on how you answer it is going to determine how you then answer the redemption question, what can we do about it? Because that question's already been answered. Something was done about it 2,000 years ago on a cross. It's a very different worldview in how you approach things. If you don't believe that redemption has anything to say with what we can do with suffering and evil in this world, then suddenly you have to believe in humanism or you have to believe in technology or you have to believe in science because what other hope do you have? But instead, we believe in something that's already begun and will someday come to fruition and, and completion in Christ's return. Yeah, and then thirdly, in order to develop a biblical worldview, we must take every thought captive. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. As Blake would, would say, determine the message behind the message. Take every thought captive. So you're watching television and Super Bowls right around the corner, right? And all of a sudden they've got this stunningly beautiful girl who's wearing way too short of shorts and then some lumberjack shirt. And then she's running through the fields and I don't know how she's doing this in the mountains. And there's like waterfall and then it's like the high life. And then she drinks a beer, right? And then some like bearded man comes out and he's like, yeah, this is the high life. What's the message there? Yeah, if you drink the beer, you'll be happy. You'll be living the high life. You'll get a really hot chick who likes lumberjack clothes, right? 
Or how about, have y'all seen, I'm, I shouldn't do this, I should always clear my web browser, but I don't. Have y'all, y'all, I watch a lot of sports, and y'all know that new, that new commercial that comes on, it's just a black screen, and it's whhsh.com. Y'all ever seen that? And it like looks so enticing. You got like that music, and you're like, this is probably not good for me to do this and go to this site. Anybody gone to it? Okay, I have. Um, yeah, it's what happens here stays here, and it's a whole ad for Vegas. What ha- so what, what does what happens here, stay here mean? Do whatever, you want. Do whatever you want, and there are no consequences. As if chlamydia doesn't fly back with you, right? <laughs> as, if, as if unwanted pregnancies don't go back to your hometown, right? But that, that's what we mean by taking every thought captive. If, you, if you're not careful, you might begin to believe those things. You know how I know? Because it's a billion-dollar industry to get us to believe those things. I mean, I clicked on it. Granted, I'm the only one out of 112 people who did, so it says a lot more about me than them, but I need to stop watching commercials. Yeah, we have to take every thought captive because we do have an enemy at war with us. We're not fighting against just flesh. We're fighting against our minds. We're fighting against what it is that we believe. What is the truth that we take to every situation? And is it based on something outside of myself? Is it based on a truth that cannot change because God is immutable and he is true. Who needs theology, we ask? Well, the answer is clear. Everyone does. Theology seeks to clarify and articulate Christian doctrine, but its goal is wider. Christians engage in theological reflection so that their lives might be changed. Theological reflection ought to foster godly spirituality and obedient discipleship. Indeed, good theology will make believers stronger, better informed, and consequently more effective disciples. Therefore, we must add to our earlier definition of theology. Christian theology is reflecting on and articulating the beliefs about God and the world that Christians share as followers of Jesus Christ for the sake of Christian living. If you haven't caught it yet, theology is inherently practical because our ideas about God will ultimately shape our actions towards God and others around us. And so if our theology is grounded in truth, grounded in scripture, grounded in who God says he is and who God says we are, man... Wouldn't our lives be radically different than somehow they are now? So, how do we do theology? Well, there's a lot of ways you can do theology. Um, One of the ways that you can do it is systematic theology, which is what we're going to do in this class in the next few months as we come ahead. Systematic theology just means what does the whole Bible teach us today about any given topic? So imagine you come across a garden. It's got all these plants in it. You're a botanist, and you're like, okay, I want to study all the cucumbers. I want to know what all the cucumbers are doing. I want to know everything about them. I'm only going to study the cucumbers. That's systematic theology. You could come in and go, I just want to know this square footage right here, but that would include, you know, the cucumbers, the tomatoes, or whatever. And so, as Blake Holmes told me the other day, he's also the master of metaphors, just so you know. He says, if we look at a whole garden, let's gather all the tomato plants and observe, interpret and apply what we learn about just the tomatoes. That's what we're going to be doing. So in the next few weeks, like, like the, or next few months, so we're going to do the doctrine of the word of God. We're going to look at doctrines like inerrancy and inspiration. We're going to say, okay, what does all of Scripture have to say about the word of God? What does all of Scripture have to say about God in the next month? What does all of Scripture have to say about redemption and so on and so forth? Okay, which is different than some of the other ways that you can attack theology. Just so you have a working definition of these terms, we added this in here. So 
as opposed to histor- uh, systematic theology, you could do historical theology, which is just the study of how Christians in different period time, time periods have understood various theological topics. So what do I mean by that? Well, how did the, the first generation after the disciples understand baptism? How did the next generation understand baptism? How did the people in the, the medieval times understand baptism? How do we today understand baptism? That's historical theology. How do we look back 2,000 years or 3,500 years and understand how people define those terms? Another way you can do theology is philosophical theology, which is studying theological topics largely without the use of scripture, but using tools of reason and logic to draw conclusions about God. We actually do this more than we realize. So I know that in, in Watermark especially, we love our Bible. And so you probably just read that and you're like, well, those people are clearly whacked out. They're not. Um, there are ways to make conclusions about God without scripture if your conclusions match scripture, if that makes sense. We could also do apologetics, which uh, Nathan on Monday nights does his great questions ministry, which is making a defense for the truthfulness of the Christian faith. And while that is important, that's not what we're doing in here. Um, or we can do biblical theology, which is studying how a particular author, so how does Moses talk about prayer? How does Moses talk about whatever? Or how a book, so how does Job talk about suffering? Um, or even just a testament, how does the Old Testament talk about prayer? We're going Similar to that, but one step bigger and going, what does all of Scripture say about X? What does all of Scripture say about Y? And so that's what we're going to be doing in, in the months to come. So any questions so far on theology, how we do it, why we do it, where do we do it, when do we do it, how long do we do it? I think I covered most of those. If not, we will take a... You want to go in five minutes or ten minutes? Um, any, any questions? I just want to give adequate <coughs> space for you guys to respond. That was a... I mean, a couple of major points, but a lot of stuff. So, any questions? Any brave soul? Okay. Um, it's 7.50, right on the dot. So, be back in here at 8 o'clock. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Simmer down, simmer down. Hey, uh... <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> hey, uh, if you're out... If you're out in the lobby, if you're out in the lobby, come on back in and join us or not, you know, whatever. (laughs) Hey, uh, as you just heard Blake shout out, uh, Hey, uh, I I understand we, we rib each other a lot, which is a lot of fun. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, that was, I also am am now realizing, like, I know a lot of y'all don't really know that. So, um, Blake's my boss. Um, I, uh, he doesn't like to be called the boss, but that's what he is. So uh, that was all in good fun when he came in. Um, you guys are really going to uh, enjoy when he, uh, when he teaches. Um, so I, I, I want to shift gears a little bit and, uh, and start talking about epistemology. And some of y'all are like, oh, what? <laughs> you know, some of y'all are like, gesundheit, you know? <clears throat> epistemology! <clears throat> and... Uh, Epistemology is just a big uh, kind of $500 word uh, that, that talks about um, the study or the theory of how we know what we know. So um, it's, it's the nature and grounds of knowledge. So it gets at when someone says, when someone makes an assertion, any assertion. In fact, we use this a lot um, in, in, uh, the, on the Great Questions team. Uh, some of y'all may have heard because uh, you've been in, in different equipping deals where uh, we use the Colombo tactic. And the Colombo tactic, the very first question in the Colombo questions is, what do you mean by that? Um, the second one is, how did you come to that conclusion? 
Okay, that that is an epistemological question because you're asking the person who made the assertion um, how uh, how they know what they know. Now, frankly, most of the conversations you're in with people, uh, the vast majority of the people, if you just ask them the very first question, what do you mean by that? They don't even they don't even know that. Right. Um, So if you're ever caught and somebody's coming at you like a, now this is getting into like apologetic deal, which I don't want to do that, but, <laughs> but Nika said, we're not going to do apologetic uh, theology. And I'm like, bull. <clears throat> so if somebody's coming at you, it's, it's just an easy, it's a really easy, like stay calm and then just be like, Hey, that's an interesting assertion. What do you mean by that? And just watch them crumble. Um, but then if they, do, if they do know what they mean by that, then, then the second question, the epistemological one is, hey, how did you arrive at that conclusion? It's a great question. It's an inviting question. You're, you're, you're asking people um, to disclose more about what they believe, which typically people love to talk about themselves. So the, they will. And, and so uh, when we, but when, uh, when people begin to uh, disclose these things to you, then you'll begin to, if you're thinking rightly, and, and have been equipped to do so, then you'll be able to uh, kind of con- construct or mentally deconstruct the argument they're making because the grounds on which they're basing their assertion are weak, right? So a, a lot of times um, people uh, uh, just live totally uncritical lives. They're, they, they, they're, the, they're the tabloid or the folk theologian. And so they're, they're spewing all this stuff that is, is grounded in sinking sand. Are you tracking with me? And so when we think about epistemology, um, and frankly, unfortunately, there's probably even represented in this room, right, um, in various aspects of our lives, um, uh, areas that we believe that we hold to be true, that we have um, either uh, only lightly cr- uh, critically thought about or not, or have totally ignored altogether. But man, we hold them to be, we hold this truth to be self-evident, right? I mean, we're writing a, you know constitution on it. And, and, and yet we haven't thought about, huh, I wonder, I wonder why I believe that. Well, epistemology is the discipline that gets at that. So there can be various influences on knowledge. Okay. I mean, these are, these are just a few that off the top of my head are like, man, these are major ones, right? Culture is a huge one. Whatever's going on in the public square, whatever people are talking about in the Twitter sphere or Facebook or, or, uh, or even just, you know, at, at, at work, I mean, um, uh, on the news, the, the, the messages that are coming at us from culture can absolutely inf- influence what you believe. And so culture is a huge one. Um, I would say even behind that, behind culture and, and at the root of a lot of this are spiritual powers right? You have uh, Ephesians chapter two, verses one through three. And as I'm talking, I'll continue to talk, but as I'm talking, someone turn to Ephesians two, one to three and be ready to read it. Okay. Um, so just somebody do that. Spiritual powers, uh, the, the spirit, the world, the flesh, the enemy. Look, I, I, I stood up a second ago and interrupted Nika, which I apologize because that was her time, but I'm, you're welcome to do the same thing with me. Um, I'll just, well, whatever. <laughs> so, but it's, uh, um, presuppositions, we are so complicated as, as human beings. We're so complicated in, in, in uh, our, our emotions, our experiences, um, our, our intellect, all of these. We don't, in other words, we don't think in a vacuum at all. 
Okay, we are, we are a, a melting pot of all kinds of things that are all thrown together, stirred up. And then it's like, okay, now try to live your life, you know, with some semblance of sanity. And, and, and yet there are all of these things that, that, uh, that come into play. So somebody read Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 really loud. Just go. Yeah. So in that one passage, you have, um, you have the world, the flesh and the, and the enemy or, or Satan. Right. And, and so, uh, again, you have, you have culture, you have your own flesh, which is predisposed as we'll get to when we talk about the nature of, of, of sin and man, we are predisposed to, if left to ourselves, we will go after that. Like, and not just go after it like, oh, that might be a good idea. We're like, I want it, you know, give it to me. And so you have those influences. You have all of those things are influencing what you believe. This is why, um, especially if you serve in ministries like Regeneration, when, when you'll see people who get caught into cycles of sin, and then you'll, they'll see some, maybe even a, a while um, of, of sobriety, and, and they'll get sucked back into the same patterns as before. And you're sitting there going, Why? Well, the answer is because it's crazy complicated, right? And, and the spirit is moving um, in all of us to heal the, the deep-seated aspects, um, every aspect of us to redeem us, transform us, and, and uh, so that truly um, we are, as Jesus said in, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Um, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So praise him that he's making us that, but it's complicated. Thirdly, your physiological disposition. Some people, um, some people are born with the, that are um, half, you know, the glass is half full, right? Some others are the glass is half empty. I tend to be a half empty kind of guy. My wife is a half full kind of person, right? Um, come listen to some of our conversations, all right? Um, how many half full people do we have in here? You tend to be an optimist, right? Okay, good. Yeah. Glad that I work with a handful of optimists. That's good. They balance me out, right? <laughs> They're like, Nate, relax, man. <clears throat> I'm like, it's all, we're all going to die, you know? Um, how, many ha- how many half empties are in there? Come on, let me see your hands. There you go. Good, good, good. How many of you, how many of you refuse to raise your hand? There you go. That's what I'm talking about. Tara, I'm strong. I, I see you. <clears throat> what is she? She's a half full. Terry, you're half full. If, in case you didn't know, then you're half full. <clears throat> so, so everybody has a disposition that we're born with, right? That's mostly, uh, obviously it can be trained, but, but mostly that's, that's biological. That's just the way God created you, right? And so even that um, influences uh, what we know, how we know it. And then obviously your personal background, your history, um, the, the experiences that you've had, um, I mean, I, uh, just a little bit of information about me. I mean, I, I tend to be a little bit more jaded when it comes to the world. Um, and, and I have to recognize that um, I, I served in the military. I did two uh, deployments to Afghanistan. That, that is going to shape the way that you view the world, right? And so um, I, I, need to insh- I need to make sure that when I critically evaluate how I view the world, that I'm taking that into account to be like, hey, okay, um, like that was crazy, <laughs> but let's temper that because not everything is like that, right? 
Um, so when, when we look at sources of authority, though, and, and as we measure these things and look at, at, at what actually is, um, then there, I'm going to argue for tonight that the, they go in this order. Okay, First of all, scripture. Second, tradition. Third, reason. Fourth, experience. And fifth, emotion. All right, so let's look at the authority of scripture first. <clears throat> authority of scripture. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do for each one of these, I'm going to do a strength and weakness for them because I think that each of them does have a strength and also has kind of a pitfall that you can fall into if you're focusing too much on this as authority. So obviously um, at Watermark, we would hold uh, the highest authority as what? That's right. Good. Y'all get an A, pass the class. Great. Um, everything else is secondary. <laughs> okay. Um, so the strength of this is that is like it says that scripture is the final authority for Christian faith and practice. Um, why is that? So someone might be like, well, that's an interesting assertion. What do you mean by that? Right. Um, how, how did you come to that conclusion? And, and what we would say was, well, scripture testifies about itself in second Timothy chapter three, verse 16 and 17, that all scripture is God breathed. Okay, what that means is, um, and we'll get to this more next week when we talk, or next week, next month, I keep thinking a month <laughs> in terms of weeks, but next month when we talk about the doctrine of the word of God is that it's God breathed, like what God is intended to communicate um, uh, through his authors is actually being communicated, that it is true um, in what it teaches. So it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Again, the, it's, it's, it's not just for knowledge only, it's for the implementation um, in, into your life so that it, it, it is one of the primary means by which God, through his spirit, transforms us um, in, into who he m- means for us to be. The danger of this, and this is a big danger, okay? Big neon sign flashing at you constantly is what, we, what I would call an isolated hermeneutic. Um, again, hermeneutic is like, y'all are like, what in the world is a hermeneutic, right? <clears throat> well, um, if I had a little more space there, and probably I should anyway, just change it. Um, is hermeneutic is just the method by which you study the Bible, okay? It's your interpretive method by which you, di- you discern what the Bible is actually saying. Um, which is why people have different hermeneutics. So someone's going to read a passage and say one thing, and someone's going to read the passage and say something totally different. Sometimes it's the opposite thing, right? Because the, 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 the method, methodology they use to implement, to interpret what the text is saying is drastically different. We're actually going to teach you guys um, a, 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 a solid one um, in here. And then we actually have uh, keys to effective Bible study as well, which is a core class. You can take that. <clears throat> it's a little commercial for you. Um, it's not, it's not what stays in, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Um, it's a different commercial. (laughs) Um, and then, and then I would say this too, man, this happens all the time. Oh my gosh, it drives me crazy. Right. But, but people are like, people will absolutely interpret scripture by how you feel. Right. So have you ever sat by a show of hands? And I'm asking you, have you ever sat in a circle in a Bible study, a Bible study? And everybody has their Bible open and you, and you go around and be like, well, hey, what, is this, what, what, do you, what does this mean to you? How do you what, what do you feel like this means? Raise your hand if you've ever heard that before, right? Um, or, or said it, right? <laughs> Raise both hands if you, no, I'm just joking. <clears throat> All right. Um, that, man, that is really dangerous, okay? Um, it, it's dangerous because... Um, uh, th- th- there is, like Nike said, there is actual objective meaning in the text. It's our job as theologians, it's our job as biblical theologians 
to, to ascertain or draw out of the text the actual meaning, not the meaning that you think is there. Um, uh, and again, understanding contextually that the meaning you think is there is influenced by your personal disposition, um, your influences that have, that have played into your mind the, your entire life, that have shaped the way that you see the world. It's the lens that you view the world through. And I'm telling you, everybody's lens is broken. That's why when you come to the text, the very first thing you have to do is one, pray and ask God to hey, help me see where the things that I cannot see, um, help heal the lens by which I view. We need to come to the text with an enormous amount of humility, right? Uh, otherwise, um, you're going to be ultimately, I mean, the, the extreme form of it is you start um, saying crazy stuff and make, make a cult, right? Um, anyway, <clears throat> so that's the authority of scripture. That's the strength, obviously, and also the danger. Um, second is the authority of tradition. The strength of the authority of tradition is that it provides a stream of orthodoxy and established parameters. So, um, and we, we uh, another shameless plug, but starting next month, um, we are going to be hosting an equipping webinar, okay, on, on a Friday. I haven't determined the Friday yet. It's probably gonna be the last Friday of the month. But we did a pilot one kind of internal to staff um, this last week and, and talked about the, you know, um, when you come to the text that, that this provides um, fences for you. Like if you're saying something um, today that has never been said in 2000 years of established Christian um, uh, uh, theology, then you should probably not say it, Right. <laughs> Let's be honest. I mean, it's, it's like, it's, it's that guy that comes along and says, man, I know I, I've got, I've, I now have the corner on the market. This is the thing that's been hidden from us for 1900, 2000 years. And now here it is, right? This is God's word to you. And, and the, our answer should be like, no, it's not right. I mean, uh, there, uh, uh, there's nothing, um, as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, I love GK Chesterton's, uh, in, in his little book, Orthodoxy, which if you haven't read it, would encourage you to read that. Um, but he said, I'm paraphrasing him, but he said, I, I searched out to find, uh, the, the, you know, basically true theology to, to find out the nature of God. And, and I, I did this massive lap around, you know, all of this stuff. And when I came back to, um, and, and had finally, you know, finished my work and had put a nice tidy bow on it, I realized, Oh, that's Christian orthodoxy, right? I'm just affirming what's been affirmed for 2000 years. Um, and so the, and I think that that's what tradition um, gives us. That's why reading the, the early fathers is so critically important. That's why, you know, not just the early fathers. I mean, um, pretty much every age, this gets into the, the realm of historical theology, but it helps us. It helps us to, it helps us to not make mistakes. You've heard the old uh, adage. I don't even know who to attribute it to. So I'll attribute it to Blake Holmes. <laughs> um, but but uh, it just said, hey, if, if you're not a student of history, then you're doomed to repeat it. Right, and and that is absolutely true in in the realm of theology. Okay, um, it's it's so funny, man. Too, you have these guys and gals that that a lot of times will get fired up about this new interpretation, and they're so excited, and then they get around people who've actually done their homework, and they let them know, like, oh yeah, that was rejected in the third century, you know, at the Council of Nicaea, and they're like, ah, oh, dang it, you know, if only I would have read the Nicene Creed, you know, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, if only. Um, anyway. The danger of this is, is placing tradition on the same authoritative level as scripture. 
Um, For those of us um, in the room who came from a Roman Catholic tradition, this is exactly one of the mistakes that the Roman Catholic Church makes. Um, The Catechism of the Catholic Church, um, uh, 82 and 97, says both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up a single sacred deposit of the word of God, right? And we would say, as, as, as Protestant evangelicals, we would say, no, that's not true. Tradition is extremely important, but it is always subservient. It is always, um, sub, uh, tradition always submits to the authority of the written word, Okay. Thirdly, the authority of reason. Again, you know, reason in, it, in and of itself is, is a gift of God. So the strength of it is when, it's, when your reason is ordered under God, it provides the framework for piecing together reality. In other words, like I've said multiple times, like we don't think in a, we don't think in a vacuum. Like God, God has given us um, all kinds of things um, in our reality. And frankly, even as I opened our time together and prayed, uh, if you heard, heard me and paid attention in my prayer when I said, um, Lord, even the thoughts that are coursing through our veins, they only make sense in you, right? That, that's, what I was, that's what I was talking about is that um, the fact that we think at all is sourced in and also sustained by God. Um, uh, otherwise, what you get in, in, in a life apart from God um, is, is naturalism, is reason without God, regarding reason as the chief source and test of knowledge. In other words, um, you, you have this... Uh, uh, I was listening to a, a, a deal today. Um, you'll, hear me, you'll hear me quote C.S. Lewis a lot because, well... I read a lot of C.S. Lewis. <clears throat> he, he helps, the, the, also is an influencer on me in, the, in shaping the way that I think. But, but he was talking about a conversation he had with a friend of his about the laws of nature. And, and the guy that he was talking to was like, hey, um, there is nothing but the laws of nature. Like the laws of nature, you know, uh, drive the way that we live. It's, and in other words, his friend was a naturalist. And Lewis just brought up the point that was like, hey, um, uh, of, of all of the things that, that happen, um, the, the laws, every, every occurrence must fit into um, a law of nature. And Lewis is like, yeah, it does. I mean, it, all reality fits under these laws, these standard laws. But the laws themselves cannot produce any event. They're just the rules that actual reality conforms to. Do you see what I'm saying? And so um, uh, what Lewis ended up saying was, hey, hey friend, I think the laws of nature um, kind of helps describe everything except the whole universe, right? And, and, and because they're leaving out the very uh, reality that, that's, that is uh, sourcing and sustaining our experience. Now, we use laws, we use, we use laws to try to explain and to try to you know, put a parameter on and, and to put a paradigm together to be like, okay, this is how we can understand that reality, but the laws themselves are not the reality. And in that, that's obviously the massive mistake that naturalism makes, is it, is, is it puts all of its eggs into its, into its uh, structure that, that is attempting to uh, uh, understand reality and in putting all the eggs in the basket, the thing falls apart. Right? So here, here's a um, really cool quote, um, and Rene Descartes was fit into this kind of category, right? Um, cogito ergo uh, assume, I think, therefore I am. Um, and this is Lewis, like I said, I'm going to quote him a lot, but this is a, a kind of a more lengthy quote, but I love it, <laughs> right? <clears throat> if the solar system was brought about by an accidental collision, 
Um, so he's talking about naturalistic or, or Darwinian evolution, this, this naturalistic evolution. Um, then the appearance of organic life on this planet was also an accident. And the whole evolution of man was an accident too. So, right, if, if, in other words, what he's saying is, is if there was no source to reality from the very beginning, then everything that we, that everything that is real from the source of um, reality, everything that's real um, ultimately can be traced back to this one point, which itself is an accident. Um, It's meaningless. If so, back to the quote, then all of our present thoughts are mere accidents, the accidental byproduct of the movement of atoms. And this holds true for the thoughts um, of the materialists and astronomers, as well as anyone else. But if their thoughts, uh, uh, for example, of materialism and astronomy are merely accidental byproducts, why should we believe them to be true? I don't see any reason for believing that one accident should be able to give me a correct account of all the other accidents. It's like expecting that the accidental shape taken by the splash when you upset a milk jug should give you a correct account of how the jug was made and why it was upset, right? If naturalism were true, then all of the thoughts, whatever, would be wholly the result of irrational causes. Therefore, all thoughts would be equally worthless. Therefore, naturalism is worthless. If it's true, then we can know no truths. It cuts its own throat, right? And so when, when, when you're using your mind, um, do not bank and throw all of your, the eggs in the basket and your ability to be able to systematize and put things together. Frankly, this is one of the dangers of systematic theology, right? It is, is that we'll, we'll put this nice little bow on theology and I promise you there's one thing about God. God will always elbow his way out of the box that you put him in. I promise you, that's what he does. He's like, oh, nice little box. That's funny, right? <laughs> I'm out, right? And you're like, huh, you know, I like, like that. Um, which frankly, I mean, let's like going back to our conversation we had on this webinar the other day is, is and Blake made the point where he's just like, man, the crazy thing about heaven is that even when we get to heaven, we will never get to the end of God, right? That's awesome, right? For eternity, God's, God is so, um, and right now I can't think of the term. What's, it's, uh, um, Inscrutable. Yeah, thanks. That, that's what inscrutable means is that there, uh, there, is, there is no end to uh, our, uh, um, our, uh, God's capacity to be, to be known. So it, we're going to know him and know him and continue to know him and continue to learn and continue to, um, to experience the, um, the life of God. It's, it's really cool, right? Nate, we have a question. Yep. Where is it? Yes. What's your name? Kara. Hey, Kara. What's up? Hi. <laughs> oh, the, that book is, is uh, called God in the Dock by C.S. Lewis. Um, God in the Dock. The, uh, someone being in the dock is, is an English um, idiom. It basically just means they're on trial. Um, whoever's on trial is in the dock. So God is in the dock. God's on trial. It's like in, in American English, we'd say God on trial would be the name of the book. Uh-huh. Yeah, both of those instances. So the quote and also the story I told are both in that book. Yep. Would it definitely encourage you to get that book, right? The cool thing about it is it's a, it's a series of um, about 30 essays and, and they're mostly unrelated to one another, except, um, you know, they all have a similar theme like theology, ethics, um, 
something like that. And so you can go read one. In fact, um, well, no, making a begetting is from mere Christianity, but um, uh, you can go read them and, and they're short essays. So you can read one and then go um, from there. Okay, the authority of experience. And now these last two, typically people start to get a little nervous, like, eh, you know, and so I want to talk about the strengths of them because the weakness is definitely there. They tend to be viewed more negatively um, and, and because the dangers implicit in them are really dangerous. But the strength is, is, is when, when scripture is integrated with the spirit's work in real life, then experience can actually be a vehicle to grow in the knowledge of God. I think this is exactly what Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter one, all right? When he says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. And then check this out, growing in the knowledge of God. So there is this, so there's this, this filling of knowledge um, that the spirit gives you wisdom and understanding so you can implement it into your life. And then as you live what the Holy Spirit is showing you, as you practice those things, then you actually grow in the knowledge of God. Right? It, it's, so it's not, it's not a knowledge or experience. Um, it, it's not an either or. It's a both and. It's that, you, it's that the Spirit gives you wisdom and understanding and knowledge about God so that you can, so that you can live a, a life um, whereby um, you are uh, living by the, the principles that the Spirit is, is enabling you, empowering you to do. And in doing so, it opens you up to know more about God so that you can live a deeper life of faithfulness to him, so that you can know more about him, so that you can live a di- life of, uh, I was going to say diaper. No, I have two sons. So <laughs> wow, that was weird. <laughs> and then there's also that influence of like parenting. That's like a huge epistemological shift, right? <clears throat> but so that you can grow in faithfulness to God. And so experience is actually, I would say, is, is, is crucial to our knowledge of God. It's, it's not, again, it, theologians are not hanging out in ivory towers where they're, they're, they're uh, um, experiencing God only in the realm of ideas alone, right? Um, this, is, this is why I spent, I wanted to take five or 10 minutes at the beginning um, to just show like, hey, um, the, if, if you think you're doing theology, but you're not encountering um, God through the power of the Holy Spirit, who's empowering you and enabling you to live the type of life that he wants you to live, then frankly, I don't know what you're doing. You're just getting smarter, okay? Which, I mean, I'm for getting smarter, but I'm even more than that for allowing the knowledge of God um, to actually do what it's supposed to do, and that is enable you to live the type of life, uh, uh, to enable you to live a Jesus type of life. Um, that's what we're ultimately, you know, that's what God is trying to do. The danger of it is empiricism, and that is, Empiricism is just believing that all knowledge originates um, in experience. So unless I can experience uh, this, then I cannot know it, right? And that's where I'm like, well, really? You know? I mean, there's all, I don't have time to go into all the holes that, that are in that, but I promise you, you can just, you know, 12-gauge shoot some holes in that pretty quickly, all right? Um, but frankly, when you're getting, uh, when, when you're talking about 
interacting with people in the world, this is, this is one of the primary epistemological um, uh, cans that people put all of their marbles in, right? Um, and so when you're engaging people and you're asking them, oh, that's interesting, what do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? Then you're able to pretty quickly see where um, people put their epistemological sources, um, how, how much they're emphasizing one over the other. And then lastly, the authority of emotion. The strength of it, again, is when ordered under God, it can serve as an integral aspect of knowing God and can instigate and drive appropriate action. So um, Ephesians uh, chapter 4, I believe it is. Micah, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but, uh, or, or give me the verse, because <clears throat> um, I can't remember it off the top of my head. But, but Paul says, he says, be angry. For what? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He says, be angry. Did y'all know that's an imperative? Do you know what an imperative is? What's, a, what's an imperative? It's a command, right? He's not saying, hey, you know, you might want to think about, I mean, he's telling you, he's saying, be angry. You're like, seriously, it says that in the Bible? 426. 426. There you go. <clears throat> be angry. And you're like, seriously, um, but, but frankly, and, and obviously, cause I don't want to take this out of uh, context, be angry, but don't sin, right? And do not let the sun go down on your anger. And so I, I do think, man, there is, there is something about an, at, being an infantryman in the army. I mean, I promise you, like I've seen some stuff where it's like, Hey, you need to get angry about that and do something about it. Because right now in this moment, you are an agent that God has placed in this time, in this space to actually, um, uh, to actually intercept and put down something that's evil that needs to get you fired up, right? But in your anger, don't sin, right? So emotion can be an integral part of our experience. It needs to be that, but the danger of it is huge, right? And that is emotionalism. And that is believing that, that your emotion is the most reliable basis for interpreting reality and making decisions. Um, for example, do what feels right to you or be true to yourself. <clears throat> Have you, anybody, Seinfeld, anybody watch Seinfeld, right? Um, yeah, handful. All right, the rest of y'all repent. All right. Um, <laughs> the, no, the, have y'all seen that episode where George decides he's going he's gonna to be opposite George, right? He's like, he's like, I'm so sick and tired. Every single decision I ever make is horrible. So I'm going to do the opposite of what I would do. And he turns into this genius <laughs> over like 30 minutes. He's like, you know, an astrophysicist or whatever. I mean, he's, uh, I mean, he does the exact opposite and everything goes right in his life. And, and while, while that's obviously, um, you know, a, a parody, and, and meant to be uh, humorous, there is something to be said to say, hey, you need to have a healthy distrust of your emotion, right? You, you, need, to have, you need to have a healthy distrust of, man, I really want to... <clears throat> that's why, you know, as we talked about, I don't know how many of y'all went to that Better Together deal last night, but that's why, that's why community is so, um, it, uh, such an integral part of the Christian life is that, is that it's going to put parameters on you to be like, hey, I know you want to, but let's step back and evaluate your epistemological paradigm right now, right? Um, how, which, you know, and I, I wouldn't necessarily like encourage you to use those words with your community. <laughs> Y'all are going to show up and be like, all right, tonight we're going to talk about epistemological paradigms, you know? Um, yeah. Um, you could just as easily just be like, hey, let's evaluate, you know, how you've come to make this decision right now. For those of y'all who are young adults, um, and, and uh, by young adults, I mean like, uh, you know, uh, not unmarried, then, then, uh, then I would, um, yeah, sorry. Um, 
Do what? Did I say not unmarried? Okay. What I meant, what I meant by that was unmarried. Um, and even then, it was probably a better way to say that. But I'm just thinking about all the single folks in the room. And I, dude, I remember being single. Single was not single. Single was single was fun. Single was complicated, right? It was crazy complicated. I mean, you're like, oh, what's she thinking? And girls, are, oh, what's he thinking? Uh, yeah, you know, the whole thing blows up in your face. <clears throat> but how many times have we been counseling people who are who are single, um, who are who are making really poor decisions, right? Because of their their emotions are so stirred up, right? And so when, when we're thinking about epistemology, all of these things come into play. Um, so there's this the kind of imagery of a tree. And so of those five epistemological sources of, or, or the sources of knowledge, um, of those five, which one do you think anchors all of the branches? So you have branches, obviously, uh, stemming out from the tree, but there's only one trunk, right? Um, which one is the strongest? Scripture, Right. Um, it is, and, and frankly, um, if we could turn the picture upside down, the way the world um, thinks and makes decisions is typically the exact inverse of what I just said. Their emotion determines their experience, determines their reason, determines how they think, determines the tradition that they're involved in, determines, frankly, who is God, right? It's called idolatry. It's exactly what it is. It's exactly the opposite of what we just said. So, and I think it's an appropriate question to ask as, as we're all sitting here talking about this, is that, look, um, Scripture is supposed to be the strongest one, but I would ask you, which one's the loudest in your life, right? Um, if, if you're sitting there in front of a sound mixing board and all five of them are there, which one is jacked up to 10, right? And, and which one um, is like a, a silent two? Um, so food for thought. Okay, um, before we move on, any questions about this? Um, yeah, Kara, right? Kara again. Come on, Kara. Right. Send it. Yep, yep. That was that was fascinating, Kara. <laughs> I'm just no. I, I think I think you're on to I think you're on to exactly reinforcing what I was saying. And by empiricism, I do mean what you can experience with the five senses. What's testable? What's repeatable? What fits into the, what fits into the uh, scientific method? And and so, but unfortunately, I think a lot of people would would in their own experience be like, hey, I just experienced this, so I'm either going to try to make sense of it by experiencing it again. Or, or I'm going to attempt to try to measure it in, in whatever best way that I can using my reason to then dictate, okay, now I've experienced this, I understand it, and now that's going to help dictate ultimately when, when done in an inverse way, that's going to help dictate wh- um, who is God. And frankly, you know what the scary answer is to who is God? We are, right? And, and I think you, when you study historical theology, you'll see over and over and over and over again. I mean, really, the history of mankind um, is God is God, but we're trying to be God instead, right? And so, um, you know, it it takes a movement of the Spirit to actually convince us that we're not God, um, which is 
why it says, and the Spirit draws him, draws them, you know, to himself. Okay, anybody else? Okay, good. Um, Nike, you want to come back up here? <clears throat> we'll do this last one, this last part together, because um, we we absolutely want to um, make sure that that we clarify um, when when we when you're doing theology, there is absolutely an order to. Uh, uh, there's, there's absolutely an order to the doctrines. So some doctrines we hold more loosely in our hands than others. That's what I'm saying by that, okay? And so to help us, we have the theological concentric circles or the theological target, right? Looks like this. Looks like a target. And so in the center, we would say these are the essentials. These are the things, um, and by essentials, I mean if you drop any of them, then you're no longer Christian. Um, these are the things that are necessary for someone to be Christian, um, then the second tier or the second circle are convictions. These are things that, that uh, we would hold very strongly to. We would have a, a deep-seated conviction about these things. And frankly, the way I kind of measure convictions is I'm going to break fellowship with you over this, right? So that's why there's a ton of different denominations and different cr- Christian churches and stuff like that. Because while we would hold um, the center uh, all the same, we're definitely going to have different views on that second tier, and that's going to actually uh, cause us to break fellowship. Um, the third circle are opinions. These are things that I would say, hey, you can, you can have a really strong opinion about this, right? But I would not necessarily like break fellowship um, with someone uh, uh, over this. And then, uh, and then fourth, the fourth tier is just questions. Like, Someone's like, hey, I have an idea about this. And I'm like, man, if you're supporting that with scripture and you've thought about it, well, your idea is better than mine. Like, sweet, awesome, great, good job, drive on, you know. So what do we mean by essentials? You want to say something real quick? No. All right. <clears throat> what we mean by essentials are these. Trinity, that God is three, pers- three distinct uh, individual persons, um, and all those three distinct persons share the same essence. So while we, while we affirm that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, track with me so far, all right? Um, there is one God, okay? Um, we would also say that it's essential as Christians to believe in some view of sin, okay? That we, are, that we have fallen and are in need of redemption. Um, the virgin birth is essential because it's closely tied to um, what's called the hypostatic union or, or the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Okay, this is essential. If you reject these things, you're not Christian. Um, we, you have to hold to some form of atonement or the fact that, that Jesus um, has taken, like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, verse 21 says, that God made him who knew no sin to become sin, to be sin, on our behalf, uh, that, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, right? That's, a, that's called atonement. Um, um, next, resurrection, okay? You have to believe that Jesus literally physically got up from the dead, or you're not a Christian, okay? You're something, but you're not Christian. And then lastly, it's restoration. You have to believe in some sort of, of, of doctrine whereby um, what is broken will be made new, okay? Now, I just spoke really generally about all of those things. All right? I didn't give you particulars in them because the particulars are, um, are typically where people begin to disagree and they fall into that second tier category. Okay? Yes, question? Uh, that's the fully God and fully man. That's just the theological term that, that um, I probably shouldn't even have said that. Now we'll we'll also get to that too on the Jesus month. Yep, so yeah, that's, that's a good right. question. Yep. 
One yeah. month. Yeah, one month only, hey, Jesus. only one month is about Jesus. That's it. So don't miss it. <laughs> you may not be in the target. <clears throat> okay. The second tier. We would say, um, we, would, um, we would hold that various views on justification. So, so under atonement, you're going to be like, hey, um, the, this various views on, on how exactly the atonement works itself out. So this is where we would break with our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, right? Our views on justification are pretty different, right? Different enough for there to be a Protestant Reformation, right? Um, different enough for us to be like, hey, I still, like, I believe that there are Roman Catholic Catholics who are actually Christian, who, who actually have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Um, we're going to pretty strongly disagree on some stuff, and this is one of them, but, I, but they're still Christian, right? Various views on homosexuality, right? I think that there are a lot of churches today that have actual, genuine Christians who actually know God through the sacrifice of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit who are accepting homosexuals as a, an alternate lifestyle, we would strongly disagree with that. We would disagree with our brothers and sisters to the point of saying, um, we're going to break fellowship with you over that, right? But we're not going to be like, pagans, you know, um, you're not Christian kind of thing. It's, um, or, or if we are, we should not, right? Um, and then thirdly, and probably most controversial, right, we would also say that inerrancy um, is not central. So um, you don't have to believe that, that the, the, the entire Bible is totally without error, right, um, and still be a Christian. Um, namely, frankly, we've, co- we've we read his article and also quoted from him twice tonight. C.S. Lewis was not a, a, what we would call a strict inerrantist, right? Um, there are plenty of people who are not inerrantists that I, would, that I have a hard time being like, you're not Christian. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, this is, so Nate and I teach this a lot together, and what we usually do is kind of good cop, bad cop. He's bad cop, so he comes in, and he just, like, rocks people. (laughs) And he's like, hey, you can love Jesus and not believe the word of God is inerrant. And then typically people, like, tense up, and then I'm like, well, hang on. And then I (laughs) come in and play good cop. Yeah. And, and so what we mean by this, and this is, this is really critical, actually, to some of what's actually going on in Watermark here. And so just to clarify some things, what we're saying is, is while we would emphatically disagree with those who believe that it's okay to practice homosexuality, we would not say they're not Christian. That, that's what we're saying here, is that what's in that, what's in that central target there is the qualifications what makes you Christian. Now, do we think that they're immature in their beliefs? Yes, so much so that we make a distinction now at Watermark when you filled out your 4B form, and if you mm. haven't yet, shame on you, and you cannot leave tonight <laughs> until you do it. Because you're not really a member. <laughs> but we changed. Yeah, you're not a member, which means you cannot be in this class, so we're retroactively <laughs> kicking you out. And so, <clears throat> not in the center, but we will break fellowship of. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm just kidding. Kind of. Kind of. Uh, we'll see in April where you'll you're You'll get at. a letter. Yeah, yeah. you'll get a letter. <laughs> But this is something, this is new territory for us. We've actually changed our watermark essential core doctrines. What we're saying is that this is what is essential to be in fellowship with us at Watermark. We're not saying this is what it means to be a Christian. And we reserve that. Every expression of the Christian faith reserves the right to have their core doctrinal beliefs in their church. So what we're saying is to be in fellowship with us here in this expression of the local church, we do believe we need to draw the line here because, quite frankly, our culture is at war over this issue. Mm -hmm. But to Nate's point, gang, we should be kind, 
we, we should be loving. These are things that we break fellowship over, but we don't, we don't need to be warring with our Christian friends when, quite frankly, the enemy is far, far bigger and greater than some of these things that we've been fighting yeah, about. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, and so, I mean, just getting back to the circles, we'll finish real quick. It's, it's, uh, is it 9 o'clock? Yeah, it's 9 o'clock. Um, is um, when it comes to, uh, yeah, when it comes to inerrancy, and, and I would make this point too, we're going to make it um, in a much more robust way in, uh, next month. But, uh, but I would say uh, just really quickly as kind of a soundbite is, is we, um, now we, we are, I, I am an inerrantist, like I believe the Bible is inerrant. But, um, but, but I don't, a lot of times the mistake that people make is, is that they'll start with a statement like, um, we have to say the Bible is inerrant um, in order to believe all of the other doctrines about Christianity, right? Because in our minds, the doctrines stem from our bibliology, Right? And I'm raising my hand really high going, no, that's not right, right? Um, w- what I am saying is, is that the top doctrine, and the reason you want to come that one month when we talk about Jesus, is because our top doctrine is Christology, right? I hold to a high view of Scripture because Scripture testifies about Jesus. And I'm a Christian not because the Bible says so. I'm a Christian because I literally believe that 2,000 years ago, there literally was a man who made crazy claims about himself, backed him up with his works, died on a cross, and physically got up from the dead, right? Even if there was no book ever about that at all, that doesn't change the fact that that actually happened, right? And so our bibliology and, frankly, all other doctrines are sourced in and sustained by Christ, right? What we don't want to do is to make Christ uh, subservient to Scripture that testifies about him, right? Jesus said, you search the Scripture, because in them you think you have life. I'm the way and the truth and the life, right? I mean, really, ultimately, what he's saying is, you can drop the scripture because I'm standing right here, right? Uh, and, and, and I mean, ultimately, again, some of y'all are going to walk out of here and be like, he said, drop the scripture, yeah, right? He said. <laughs> that is not what I he said. said. That is not what I said. Like he said. I said. Yeah, right. <clears throat> I really am going to get fired. Oh, um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Getting a promotion. Nice, nice, yeah. Whatever, man, you're the same. <laughs> what I am saying is that, is that Scripture, and, and hear me, Scripture is literally a just a, a tool that God has given. It is the written word that testifies about the living word. And the living word is a person which is why at the very beginning of the class, I said, if you're thinking, you can have the Bible all you want, but if the Bible is not helping you interact in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit, then it's, then it's totally lost its purpose, right? Um, it, it, is, it is merely a tool by which we know God. And frankly, it is one of the primary tools by which we know God, which is why we hold to a really high view of Scripture, all right? More on that later. <clears throat> um, Third category, I'm just giving examples. I mean, there are people here at this church who have different views on election. Um, there, there are people here who, who came in up from a, a, like a, a Church of Christ background who have different views on baptism, right? Now, obviously, as an equipping team, um, yeah, some of you guys are high-fiving, right? Um, ACU! Kelsey Inman! Yeah. <laughs> no. Who leads Kelsey, our baptism hey, ministry? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Kelsey leads our baptism <laughs> ministry. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> it's epic. <laughs> so, hey, uh, 
Now, obviously, if people hold to these different views, and we have meetings with people like this all the time, like, hey, we would encourage you to, um, uh, to you, well, don't teach this, right, at this body, because as signing, signing our doctrinal statement, you're saying, hey, I will not teach this. But that doesn't mean you can't hold to it if you have good reasons, right? I, now, obviously, we're going to, you know, you're going to hear a lot of different teaching on it, but we're not necessarily going to break fellowship with you over it unless you become belligerent. Then it's like, eh, maybe you got to go find some people. They're your people over there, you know? <laughs> And then, and then Who's lastly, that last, you know, that last circle is like dinosaurs. What are your views on alcohol? Uh, I said eschatological particulars. That's the difference in like the rapture and stuff like that, um, which um, I'm not teaching that night. I, I think y'all meant for that to happen. <laughs> anyway, and then farkling, right? If you're on staff here, some of y'all are going to have different views on whether we should farkle or not, right? And, uh, yep. and, and okay, that's great. That's a great just... question, all right? Okay, we're, we're four minutes over. Any questions really quick? No, we're good. Okay. We're, All right. We got okay. 10 minutes. Which is providential. Wait, Which we do? Which is providential. Yes. Oh, we do. Yeah, sorry. I'm looking Love at the it. wrong counter. I'm looking at the... Yes, you are. Sorry. Love it. <laughs> all right, so I'm going to interject. I'm going to interject. It's awesome. Um, for all those that booed, um, <laughs> the class cost $100. <laughs> Made hey, payable to Blake Holmes, that's right? That's right. Hey, gang, uh, we threw out a lot of information y'all tonight. And, um, and uh, to me, it's, it's really almost a crime to give you so much information without allowing you to have the chance just to stop and digest it and really think about the everyday practical uh, implications of these ideas we're throwing out there. And so over this next month, I'm really going to encourage you with your community group or if you came with friends or family or others to take this page that you have here, okay, email Nika, Nathan, me, any of us, okay, if you have questions about um, what we discussed tonight and you don't understand. But I'm encouraging you to take this page and to think through, hey, where do I see this to be true in my daily life? Okay, so I want you to think back. We started by saying that everyone is a theologian. Okay, we, we really believe that. Everyone's a theologian. The question is, are you a biblical or a good theologian? But everyone's a theologian because every single one of us has answered the question of why am I here and what's the purpose in life? Is there meaning in life? Okay, and what we're doing, the, theology is simply faith-seeking understanding. Okay, the atheist is the theologian. He has made a statement about what he believes about God or the fact that he doesn't believe there is a God. But everyone's a theologian. The question is, what kind of theologian are you? So um, we also talked about the fact that, and this just, these are, we went so fast through this that I just want to pause for a second. Nika talked about a biblical worldview. So there's four categories in. Um, evaluating any worldview, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Okay, those are the, if you think about this, this is an immensely helpful paradigm. People ask me, um, well, what do you think about a certain belief, a religion, or philosophy? You can evaluate every religion, every belief, and every philosophy based on those four buckets. Okay, creation. Creation Think of it in this, in this uh, way. Who am I? Why am I here? Is there a God? Okay, the Bible answers that question. You're created. There is a God. He created you. 
He created you in his image to have a relationship with him. Okay, fall. The fall answers the question, what is the problem? The Bible says the problem is, is that we rebelled against God. We broke fellowship with God. We ran from him. And because of that, we've experienced death or separation from God. So is there a solution? What is the solution? That is redemption. The solution is found in the person, Jesus Christ, and what he did on the cross and three days later rose again. And that's how we can be restored into a right relationship with God. Restoration. Where are we going? What does the future hold? Is there meaning, purpose in life? Is God providentially at work? Or is history just a random occurrence of events? Now, I want you to stop. You know that to be true. If you're in this class, you're a member at Watermark, I hope you know and believe all of those things. But now just stop and think about the biology teacher that you perhaps had in high school who's a humanist. Okay? A secular biologist, humanist. Think about how he or she answers those questions. Creation. Who are we? Why are we here? Is there a God? Answer? There's not a God. We're here because of time plus chance plus matter. Why are we here? Happenstance. What's the problem? Time. We have not evolved enough over time. What's the solution? More time. Education. Medical advancement. Science. Restoration. Where are we going? Well, ultimately, this earth is going to burn up. Okay? It's dramatically heating. More and more over the years. And that's where we're headed. There is no hope. There is no God who's providentially at work. Okay? So these ideas that we're going over with you, I want you to think about when you're watching the news, when you're reading the paper, when you're engaging with your neighbor. Mm -hmm. Think about creation, fall, redemption, restoration. What is the worldview my neighbor or my friend holds? What does he believe? And then what Nathan went over, why does he believe that? Okay? And he gave you um, those five... uh, terms that are really, really helpful. And then he made a very profound point. We in this room think scripture. What does the Bible have to say about that? You'll hear people on stage on Sunday all the time ask that question. Ask those in your community group. First and foremost, what does the Bible have to say about that? And that's where we start. And then we go to to tradition. What does Christendom say? What does church history say about that? Reason. Reason is a very good thing. God has given us a mind to think, to observe, okay? And then experience. Experience is not bad. And feelings. Feelings aren't bad. But when you flip that, Mm -hmm. when you flip that, it becomes tragic. And when we're not thinking, this is why the Bible so often Nike quoted a second Corinthians to take every thought captive. Paul says in Romans that we're not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Paul in Colossians, set your mind on things above. Your mind 
is the Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. mind. There is an emphasis on understanding what the scriptures say. Okay? When you inverse that and feelings start to be what determines your course of action, it leads to a whole world of pain. And that's, but feelings are very real. And you've heard Todd say all the time, feelings are real. They're just not reliable. reliable. And you know what? You're in community with people. And you know what's speaking the loudest to them? Their feelings. Their feelings so much so that they start to wonder, hey, can I trust Scripture? Okay, my experience is this. Can I really trust Scripture? My reason is this. Can I? So Nika said, hey, Blake, you've heard Blake say, hey, you cannot determine your theology on the 10th floor at Children's Medical Center. My son, when he was four years old, was diagnosed with cancer. And I am telling you, even having graduated with honors at Dallas Theological Seminary, my world was flipped upside down, and I could not tell you a verse in my head at that time. I was numb, overwhelmed, scared, angry, fearful, okay? And my feelings told me that God had absolutely abandoned me if, if there even was a God. My experience was, hey, I'm watching a four-year-old die in front of me. I'm watching other children die in front of me. Where is God? And so if you start determining your theology based on the 10th floor of where you are and how you feel at Children's Medical Center, and you don't allow scripture to inform your thoughts, you will land in a really dark place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we're not just having this class so that we can pass a test on doctrine and theology. Okay, We went through this Really, really fast. But what would bless us all is if we could just stop and go, okay, hold on. Where do you see this? Okay, where is this fleshed out in real life? This is where it's been seen in my life. Fortunately, okay, fortunately, after the pain and the numbness and all that kind of just wore wore me out, I sat there late one night. When, for whatever reason, uh, Rebecca, my wife, was up there usually with me. But late one night, I was by myself. It's about 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. I thought I'm the only person in the world. I mean, I, I just, who feels is, is I'm in this dark of a place. And the Lord brought back to me a very, very powerful passage. It's always just stuck in my head. And it's where Jesus is... No longer going to just perform public miracles, right? Bread and circuses for people. But he's calling them to something. He's claiming something about himself. And so the people start to abandon him because they can't just manipulate him to do what they want him to do. Bread and fish. He's saying, hey, listen, I'm not about just the miracles. I want you to know who I am. You've got to know who I am first. And so people start to leave. And he turns to his disciples, and what does he say? Are you going to leave? You're going to leave? And Peter says to him, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Right? 
And I sat there late that night in that room, looking at my son, not knowing whether or not he was going to live or die, totally terrified. And I thought of that passage. And it was like God said to me, hey, Blake, you going to leave now? You leaving? What are you going to do? And, it, and I'm telling you, it was like I heard Peter. <laughs> I, I sat there and I thought, well, where am I, where am I going to go? I'm going to quit my job. Can't be the equipping pastor at Watermark and, and, and punt on this. So I'll quit my job. And then what can I do? Well, uh, I'll, I'll raise money for the hospital. And maybe, what am I going to believe about God? What, what, do, what do the other religions believe? Um, what, what's out there? Uh, and I kept coming back to something. The person, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Who Jesus is. <laughs> and then it hit me. God gave his son so that I could have life. And it was then I could take my son and trust him to the one who gave me his son. And I recognized, where am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, theology, gang, is not for the academician guy out there, you know who Nyko is talking about? It's for all of us. And everybody at Children's Medical Center right now is doing theology. Every biology student in high school is doing theology. Everyone out there in corporate America is doing theology. You're doing theology. You're doing theology. It's just whether or not the Bible is informing that or not. So my challenge to you is to take this information, evaluate movies, music, TV shows, the council and community groups, the strategies at work, the teaching you hear, what you hear from politicians, and ask yourself, whoa, what's that worldview? How does that contrast with creation, fall, redemption, restoration? Okay? Christians make the, make the terrible mistake all the time. They just believe that the right guys in the White House that somehow this whole thing's going to turn around. <laughs> Guess what? It's not. Okay, so our hope is not who's in the White House. Now, we should take an active role in government. No question about it. Romans 13 teaches us that. Okay, God has given us government for a reason. Okay, but government doesn't become or replace who my God is. Mm-hmm. Psalm, 2 says, Psalm 2 says God is on his throne in heaven. He's the one I worship. He's the one who's sovereign. He's the one who's providentially ordering all of history. Okay, so listen to the radio. There's a song on country music right now that just kills me. It's called Follow Your Arrow. Anybody heard that song? Okay, really? Just a couple? She won a whatever, what's the music award you get? CMA or maybe it was a Grammy. Grammy, Uh, I think her name is Musgraves, Kelly Musgraves. It's called Follow Your Arrow, and I would listen to the people when that first came out, and people were going crazy, crazy about it. And I'm sitting there going, that is the most godless lyric. And they loved it. So 
watch the movies, listen to songs. What's, how are people reporting the news? What are politicians promising? What's being said in your community group? And just stop. Go, man, how are you, how are you basing those decisions? What, on what basis are you making that decision? Is it your feelings? If I made decisions based on how I felt when I was on the 10th floor at Children's Medical Center, trust me, I wouldn't be standing here. If I based how I'm going to love and lead my wife and care for my family based on my feelings, then I'm not going to be a very good husband or a very good father. Because there's going to be times where I feel like I want to love and serve and lead well, and there's going to be times where I'm going to be like, <laughs> not a lot of fun to lead with, live with, right? So, gang, Nike and Nathan, I think, served us well because they got us through a ton of information. And this is just night one, okay, of great uh, introduction to theology and why it matters. It matters, it matters, it matters. And my challenge to you is don't just check the box and say, okay, I did it. But take the information and use it and go, what was he talking about? Where do I see that to be true in my life? How does the Bible differ from that? And that's when you start to really be able to be a blessing to people. And I think you become more uh, theologically aware and more confident in the God that we serve is a God of truth. And your, your faith will be strengthened as a result of it. All right? So who am I handing this to? Yeah, no, yeah just praise out, man. All right. Let me pray for us. <laughs> Father in heaven, we believe in you. We believe, Father, that you are good and that you are sovereign and that you're providentially at work in every person's life in this room. We are not here because of time plus chance plus matter. We are here because you spoke this earth into existence. You had us in mind before the foundations of the world. Your scriptures teach. You know the very hairs on our head. You have named every star in the sky. You're creator, God, and you desire to have a relationship with us. We confess to you, Lord, that we are a people who seek to be our own God. The scriptures testify to that right in the garden. And in every other occurrence we see throughout the course of history, that even when you're faithful, we are faithless. And so it has taken you to send your son in the person of Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man, to come to this earth and to live a sinless life and to pay our debt, of which we could never pay, to take our place on the cross and three days later rise again. And because he got up from the grave, because Paul was able to say, O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, death, where is your victory? Because of Christ and what he's done through the power of the resurrection, we can experience new life. And because of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done in his ministry, you have called us through the power of your spirit. You've breathed life into us. And Father, because of that, you've given us eyes to see ears to hear, and we've been born again. 
not because of anything we've done, but solely by your grace. So we give you thanks. And it's because of that, Lord, I pray that you would help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we give everything we have, all of our attention, all of our time, all of our efforts, all of our love, everything would be submitted to you and your sovereignty. And Father, I thank you that we don't need to live in fear or tremble or anxiety about what the future holds because your word tells us that you truly do hold the world in your hands. And so we rejoice because you're good in all circumstances, at all the times, and in every way. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, thanks for coming. Uh, I guess the next night is February the 28th. We're going to talk doctrine of God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, there, you should have gotten a handout with uh, the whole reading pages you're supposed to have read. You'll also get an email from NICA. Um, there, there may be some supplemental articles or something we send your way just for your information. And there's also going to be at least one memory verse that we're going to try to uh, memorize every time that you'll share among your group. So um, anything else I'm missing, Nika? All right. Y'all have a great night. Thanks for hanging with us. If you have questions, we'll be up here.